Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. When I bought Izzy, I went to the website and it said, you know, because I knew about puppy mills, I knew what they were. I said, well, maybe this place doesn't buy from puppy mills right outside New York. I mean, can't be. It said, sure enough, on their website, it said, we are, we do not buy from puppy mills. We only buy from USDA licensed APHIS regulated dog breeders. No backyard breeders, no hobby breeders, no puppy mills. USDA licensed only. And I thought, wow. Boy, I mean, USDA tells me what's okay to eat, what milk's okay to drink, what meat's okay to make, and I, I don't do either of those things. But you know, it's it's an imprimatur that's extremely important to the American consumer, right? What's organic, what's safe, what you can put in your body. But it never dawned on me at that time to question why the department in, in charge of all of this dead meat is in charge of the animals that we live with. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies channel will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Rory Chris. Chris is a journalist and a National Emmy Award-winning television producer. She has reported on Iraqi refugees in Jordan coping through rollerblading, surrogate mothers giving birth to American babies in India, the cultural awakening of Jewish youths in Poland, and the conversions of Hispanic Americans to Islam in New Jersey. She was the news producer for NBC's Today Show and is a graduate of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and Princeton University. She lives in Philadelphia with her family and her dog, Izzy. Cress's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2018's The Doggy in the Window, How One Dog Led Me from the Pet Store to the Factory Farm to Uncover the Truth of where puppies really come from. When journalist Rory Cress met Izzy, she didn't think twice before bringing her home. She found the 12-week-old Wheaton Terrier in a pet shop and was handed paperwork showing Izzy had been born in a USDA-licensed breeding facility, so she couldn't be a puppy mill dog, right? But a few years later, as Rory embarked on her own difficult journey to become a mother, her curiosity began to tug at her. Sure, Izzy was her fur baby, But who was her dog's real mother? And where was she now? And where did Izzy pick up her strange personality quirks? Like so many people, Rory had assumed the young puppy was a clean slate when she bought her. Those questions led Rory, with Izzy by her side, on a nationwide investigation, the first of its kind. From a dog livestock auction to the laboratory of one of the world's leading animal behavioral scientists, all the way up to the highest echelons of the USDA, They sought answers about who we're trusting to be the watchdog for our pet dogs. 
The Doggy in the Window is a story of hope and redemption. It upends the notion that purchase dogs are a safer bet than rescues, examines how internet puppy sales allow customers to get even farther from the truth of dog breeding, and offers fresh insights into one of the oldest bonds known to humanity. With Izzy's help, we learn the real story behind the dog in the window and how she got there in the first place. Welcome, Rory, and thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. So I just wanted to begin by thanking you for writing this book. Um, As someone who grew up with a dog that we did get from a shelter, although I, I really doubt that my parents knew the facts and the arguments that you present in in your book. But more generally, as someone who loves animals and believes they should not be subjected to cruel and unusual treatment during their lives and then premature unnecessary euthanasia, I think this book fills a really important niche. It's, It's an incredible and tragic that more people do not know the facts that you detail here. So just Right off the bat, thank you for writing this book. It's, it fills an important role. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So as a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, training, and the focus of your work. Yeah. So I, I'm a journalist by trade. Really, a TV journalist was my background. When we got Izzy, it was about 2010, 2011, um, I was the news producer at Today Show. Um, and I, I say that because I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, even supposedly well-informed people, people that literally investigate for a living can overlook something like this when it comes to our our very personal attachment to an animal. Um, And I think that's something that this industry, this puppy mill, whatever you want to call it, commercial dog breeding, um, really the pet industry as a whole thrives on, is that it's able to take people out of their rational sense and sort of hijack their emotional capability to really reason with what's right and wrong. And so I'm very upfront, obviously. Um, When I wrote the book, I didn't think people would um, accept it. I thought I might be reviled by the animal welfare community, hated because I, I, I come right out and say, you know, we bought a dog. And Izzy for years really fell into my journalistic blind spot. Um, you know, I'd kiss her on the head and go off to work and report on stories that I thought merited being written about, being investigated, being pulled apart for people to understand. And I didn't understand that the biggest story for me was sleeping at the foot of my bed. And the more as a journalist, and I'm sure you're you know, familiar with this process, the more you start to pull on the thread and the more it comes and the more you pull and the more questions it leads to, you realize, wow, I, I, I'm onto a story. And it started by saying, who is this dog and where did she come from? You know, obviously I know she came from a pet shop in Long I- on Long Island, but what about before that? Okay. Her papers say Missouri and I, I can talk about that, but I'm very, it's unusual for a pet shop to give you papers with the dog's actual breeder's name and address and things like that. But okay, she's from Missouri. What does that mean? What does it mean that she came from a USDA licensed breeder? What does USDA licensed mean? And the more I started to pull at that thread, the more it unraveled before me and, you know, the bottom fell out and I was down the rabbit hole, as it were. So let's just cut right to the chase. Sure. So your book is about where puppies really come from. Yes. And the answer to that 
is that for the majority of all dogs in America, the answer is puppy mills. Yes. So would you tell us what are puppy mills? It's an important question because it hasn't been legally defined. That term does not have a definition under the law. So, you know, if you take somebody to court, if you arrest somebody, you have to do it some other way. You can't, you know, charge somebody with puppy milling. That doesn't exist. However, what's generally understood to be the acceptable definition for what a puppy mill is, is it's any breeder that puts profit above the welfare of the animals. Now, that seems to my eye, to apply to an awful lot of breeders. So then you have to kind of work into shades of meaning here, right? You have the worst of the worst puppy millers, and then you have people that just breed dogs, but are they really putting the welfare of the animal before the money? Probably not. Um, So you have a whole range of actors along that spectrum. And it's really important, I think, for me to say, I focused my entire investigation on legal dog breeding. There are illegal dog dog breeders. There are underground operations in this country and, you know, ASPCA, HSUS, all of these different animal organizations have done a really good job of ferreting them out where they can. But to me, it was really important to underscore what parts of this industry are legal. And more importantly, what part of this industry, even if you're not a dog person, even if you're not an animal person, what part of this industry are your taxpayer dollars actually supporting because you're paying for the USDA to enforce the Animal Welfare Act. And what is the Animal Welfare Act? Well, it's substandard regulations that were developed, God, 60 years ago for lab animals. And it doesn't even really cover lab animals anymore. So you've got this really substandard federal statute. You've got taxpayer-funded enforcement that doesn't really enforce. And, you know, sadly, at the end of the day, you've got these dogs that are kept in a way that it doesn't take an expert to say are wrong conditions, factory farming conditions. Yeah. So in in summary, it's puppy mills are sort of a, a form of animal agriculture. Exactly that. And the profit motive is prioritized. Yes. And so what you end up with, and this is widespread among legal, legally approved or uh legally approved mills or breeders where you end up with lifelong confinement, social distancing, uh, relentlessly repeated breeding, exposure to extreme temperatures, Mm -hmm. lack of socialization, family separation, no, never seeing the light of day, wire mesh cages. So really horrific, horrific conditions. And this is widespread. Millions of dogs a year. Um, when I wrote the book in 2017, 2016, my numbers were around 2 million. And granted, it's very, very hard to pin down an exact figure here, but about 2 million dogs a year being produced in these facilities. While there has been progress made in some areas, the pandemic has, it seems, reversed a lot of that progress. When I talk to some of my um, sources in animal welfare now, they're saying anecdotally, oh, sorry, there's Izzy. They're saying anecdotally that the pandemic has been like Christmas every day for these breeders in terms of just the sheer numbers. And I'm sure 
most of your listeners and maybe you as well can anecdotally say that you've seen an awful lot of dogs tick up in neighborhoods from people who never had dogs before during this pandemic. So I'll be interested to see how those numbers shake down when we can get some more official figures. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see it being a perfect storm in, in two different ways, because on the one hand, more adoptions or more purchases, I should say. Right. And on the other hand, less enforcement. But we'll we'll get to the enforcement in sure. a second. So you write that there are at least two main problems, and we're not including in that the the ignorance or the indifference of the American consumer. And I'll, I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit. Sure. But the first problem that you identify is how inadequate the laws and regulations at the federal level are. And you already, you referred to this, but could you talk to us a little bit more about the Animal Welfare Act oh, yeah. and the ways in which it is inadequate? So the Animal Welfare Act was created in, I believe, 1966, and it was then it was called the Animal Laboratory Animal Welfare Act. And it was really, there was this trend in labs at the time where it was called pound seizure, where dogs would be just either taken off the street or from the pound to be used in labs. Um, and so the laws that developed for how these animals were to be treated and when they could be seized arose out of that. There's a famous story of the dog that really inspired the legislation. It was named Pepper. And, you know, there's a lot in the book about that instance, but it, it traces back the evolution of this statute. Now, what what are we, 40, 60 years since then? You know, it's evolved a few times, but it hasn't evolved in a way that you or I or likely any common sense dog owner um, would say is acceptable for how to treat a dog. You know, there's a, a, a wonderful author, um, professor, I believe at Barnard, Alexandra Horowitz, and she has a, a line that I, I cite a lot when I think about this, which is that dogs are animals with an asterisk. Now, is treating any animal you know, in factory farming conditions, the right thing to do? No. Is treating any animal cruelly the right thing to do? No. But when you look at dogs, they are very different from every other animal out there in terms of what they expect from us and in terms of how they've evolved with us to be the animals, quote unquote, that they are today. And so when you look at the conditions that the Animal Welfare Act puts them in, which you listed earlier, um, double crosses them in a really profound way. Sorry, yeah. could you give just like a couple of examples? You don't have to give the yeah. exact the exact metrics, but cage size, flooring, sure. just a, a couple of the, yeah. the the facts so that the reader has some understanding of what we're talking about. Yeah, and you know, before I list them, let me just say that in many municipalities, it's important to note that if somebody saw you keeping your companion animal dog in the same conditions that a dog is kept in a USDA licensed facility with no violations. So I'm not talking about the ones who are getting bad marks. I'm talking about the A-plus students in USDA licensed dog breeding facilities. In many municipalities, you could call and get me cited for animal cruelty if I were keeping my dog in those conditions. And it, it's important to note because a dog in a breeding facility is often classified as, <laughs> as property. It's a breeding animal. It is not a companion animal, whereas the dog in your home is a companion animal. And it's important to note the distinction because we've had breeders cited with actual animal torture charges that argue it down to being a misdemeanor instead of a felony because they say that this is not a companion animal and the courts buy it. So what kind of conditions are we talking about? We're talking about cages that 
only have to be six inches longer from the tip of the dog's nose to the top of their tail. So that is not including length of tail. That's just to the, I guess, the top of the butt, we'll say. Woodering only certain times per day. Nothing required in the way of socialization and exercise if there's more than one dog in a cage, which ultimately might be worse because you might get a ton of dogs in a cage that don't really have a heck of a lot of room to breathe or live. Um, And when you talk about those wire mesh cages, think, again, I'm not a veterinarian, I'm not a scientist, but I, I have eyes in my head. And I think it's important to think about what does a dog's foot look like? And what does that wire mesh look like? That wire mesh, which by regulation doesn't have to be any thicker than really a bass guitar string. So like a bass guitar, not a six string, but a bass. So when you think about how big those kinds of wires are and a dog's foot, I think that's really important to just have in your head. And why is it wire mesh? Why is it stacked? So that all the waste falls through to the bottom and you don't have to individually wash cages. So think about the purpose of these. It's all created to not put undue pressure on the breeders, right? Not to create too much work for them. Now, I don't know about you or your listeners. I have one dog. (laughs) She's a lot of work. It's a labor of love. I love her like she's a child. I don't know how I could handle a thousand dogs in one facility, which is not an unheard of number. So you know, giving the breeder shortcuts is pretty essential to their way of business when you think about it. Right. And this, just to reify, and you already pointed this out, but we're not talking about the underground illegal ones. We're talking about the ones that are providing puppies to to Petco and PetSmart and other national chains. Well, now they don't sell dogs. I, I, I should say that. Petco and PetSmart have taken a pledge okay. not to sell dogs. They do adoption events. Um, and some in the animal welfare industry have taken a lot of issue with their selling of birds, lizards, fish, other animals. But neither of those particular big box chains do sell dogs. However, Petland is a very pervasive chain store, big box store that still does. It's regional. So depending on where you live in the country, you may not be familiar with it. I was not. I'm a native Philadelphian. I wasn't familiar with it until I began this line of work. So some areas, Petland is very common, but it's important to just note the distinction because it it, it does matter that I think some of these stores have stopped the, the, that side of the supply chain. So fair point. Absolutely important distinction. Petco, PetSmart are not doing this, but the the gist of the question I think is still valid, which is that these conditions are the conditions of breeders that are providing to the pet shops or wherever most Americans are going to purchase their new family member. Exactly. And a lot of it's online, you know, and frankly, that's much worse than any big box store selling because, you know, we have websites that we're contending with called things like nextdaypets.com. Um, and I profiled somebody who purchased from that site. And sure enough, a dog showed up the next day. So you have this very easy availability. And that's these are the facilities virtually every one of these dogs are coming from. And Right. And so that's dogs' coverage under the Animal Welfare Act. Worth mentioning in passing, although this is not the subject of our discussion, rats, mice, birds, agricultural animals such as cows, chickens, and pigs, all of these are excluded Correct. from 
Right. So they're not even, there's no protections for them. There, I am not expert there. There may right. be some other lab protections now, but what is interesting is that the legislation originally designated for lab animals doesn't cover most of the lab animals that we use today, rats for rodents for large portion, but there may be some other legislation there. Um, that isn't my expertise. Right. Unfortunately. So the second main problem that you identify is that even though the laws, as we just detailed, are inadequate. The enforcement of those laws is largely non-existent a decent portion of the time. Correct. So would you talk to us a bit about the role the USDA plays here and about their relationship to big agriculture? Yeah. I mean, USDA is doing their job, which is to say their mission statement is to preserve and protect rural America and its ability to produce agriculture. There's nothing in their mission statement about protecting animals. So they're doing their job. (laughs) Whether or not I agree with how they're doing it or whether or not dogs, companion animals, should be under the purview of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I put a, a big underscore under Department of Agriculture because for me, when I was purchasing Izzy, as a, you know, as a journalist, I didn't cover animal issues. This was, and I probably, by the way, would never have gotten the access to cu- to write this book if I had been on right. an animal welfare beat or any, because these people all Googled me before I got access to right. anything um, that wasn't undercover. But when I bought Izzy, I went to the website and it said, you know, because I knew about puppy mills, I knew what they were. I said, well, maybe this place doesn't buy from puppy mills right outside New York. I mean, can't be. It said, sure enough, on their website, it said, we are we do not buy from puppy mills. We only buy from USDA licensed APHIS regulated dog breeders, no backyard breeders, no hobby breeders, no puppy mills, USDA licensed only. And I thought, wow, boy, I mean, USDA tells me what's okay to eat, what milk's okay to drink, what meat's okay to make. And I, I don't do either of those things, but you know, it's, it's an imprimatur that's extremely important to the American consumer, right? What's organic, what's safe, what you can put in your body. But it never dawned on me at that time to question why the department in charge of all of this dead meat is in charge of the animals that we live with. You know, these are living dogs. This isn't meat destined for your table. So there's a whole component psychologically of what this animal is designed to be when you're just talking about the production side, if you remove your emotions from it and just look at it, you know, kind of coldly, which is hard to do with dogs, but you kind of have to, to grasp why it's so wrong that it's the U.S. Department of Agriculture even overseeing it and just how it makes no sense. Are these dogs agriculture? That's an important question. And the problem is, so the USDA goes out to each of these facilities about once a year. You get some of these facilities in very remote parts of rural country, the rural part of the country where these people get to really know their USDA inspector. So whether or not they're supposed to, they might get a phone call the day before letting them know they're coming, or maybe the USDA inspector comes and it's Joe who's been inspecting Mary's farm for 30 years because he's the guy in that area and he knows what a farmer's life is like because that's where he lives, and he rubber stamps it. So, And I should just say, when I originally wrote the book, that was – the thesis of my entire book was that the inspection reports are misleading because they aren't documenting what they're seeing. They're going, but they're not documenting it. I should say my, my manuscript was due a month after Trump's inauguration. 
within 15 days of Trump's inauguration, he had the entire USDA database pulled from the internet. Right. So you could no longer access any of the records anymore. <laughs> I had to rewrite the whole book from a different standpoint, which is to say, we need transparency of some kind here. Now the reports are back up, but they're still not telling you what you need to know. Um, they're not giving a lot of information. I've gone on and searched breeders I know have violations. And, and when they did they? Appear. When did they come back up? They came up in drips and drabs in different ways as the lawsuits kind of developed from animal welfare groups um, pushing to get them back up. So first it came, you could like search a number, like their inspection number only if you had, it was very convoluted, but now they're up as of my last check. Is there, I'm sorry, is there any sense of 100% of the data that was taken down is up or 4%? Is there any sense of if anything was lost and if so, how much? That's actually a really good question for, there's an organization called Bailing Out Benji that I um, I really respect their work. They do a lot of data mining on this mm-hmm. issue. Um, their founder would have a better idea okay. of that. Um, they, I'm not so sure how much has been restored, but they, they FOIA requested everything. They've, they've got the most up-to-date as, as far as you can get. Um, the problem is, even if you did have 100% access to whatever had been there before, because I started writing this book before Trump, th- there's <laughs> they're still not adequate <laughs> because it's still not the, – the department is still finding ways to sweep things under the rug by changing classifications. Like you might need two critical violations, you lose your license. So how can we find a way to make basically – everything not a critical violation. We'll call this one a teachable moment, quote unquote, so that I don't actually have to write it down. I think now they're supposed to write them down, but they don't. It's a process that basically just keeps the consumer as far away from seeing what's actually happening as possible. That's what the entire industry is about. And in in terms of big ag, to answer the other part of your question, what's been really infuriating to watch, and I come back to this again, are dogs like other farm animals, you know, and just thinking about where they're going to be produced and what they're being produced for. What's the purpose, right? When, for example, Missouri tried to pass legislation that would put some really serious restrictions on dog breeding, and mind you, Missouri is typically the number one uh, state in the country for dog breeding by a mile. Big Ag marched in, and suddenly you had big TV ads, big radio spends from big agricultural interest groups like Protect the Harvest, uh, Big Beef, Big Pork, Big Poultry coming in and saying, you know, you don't want this legislation. Why? Because they were going to put a 50 dog cap that you can't have more than 50 dogs in a breeding facility. And when I spoke to these people from the big ag groups, they said, well, you know, if they're starting to cap how many dogs we can breed, well, then they're going to cap how many pigs we can breed or cows and they would much rather have the argument over dogs before it gets anywhere near much more lucrative interests so they are in bed together but admittedly so at least there's intellectual honesty there right i mean it's 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 in their job description big agriculture exactly i'm I'm sorry the usda exactly so i think this will shed some light on 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 the pick the bigger picture so as you detail in your book the origin of the situation with dogs and and puppy mills goes back many decades and is the the product of shifts in the farming industry more than half a century ago yes so 
that's a big ass. I, I don't want you to give us the whole, that, that's, that's a book. But could you just give us the top level outline? What were the structural changes that were happening? Yeah. And how does that, how does that entail any, any connection to dog breeding? I think one thing that I think I, I write about a lot in the book, and one thing that was important for me to reckon with when I was reporting this, I am a city mouse by <laughs> my entire life. I've never lived outside a city. I don't know what it's like to be a farmer. I don't know what it's like to come up in rural America. And so this was a big part of my learning process as a reporter on the story. And what I found really heartbreaking, I should say, is that a lot of people turned to dog breeding because it was all that they had left to go to in a lot of cases. you li- Let's say you live in some small town in you know rural Kansas, rural Missouri, somewhere rural Ohio. Um, and perhaps your family used to you know be a pig farmer, a small pig farmer or a small cattle farmer or a small chicken farmer. And you know Smithfield and Tyson and all of these large corporations moved in and industrialized. The small farmers couldn't keep up and I mean because you cover animal, issues. I'm sure on the food side, you've covered the rise of factory farming in our food supply chain um, and industrialization of that supply chain. Well, it put out of business a lot of small farmers. So what do they do? Anecdotally, you know, what I'm told on the ground is a lot of them said, well, I already have cages for chickens. Why don't I put dogs in them? Or, you know, my wife used to breed bunnies, but let's breed dogs. We can make a little bit more per head and sell them off. And I should say, in a lot of cases, these breeders are not making a ton of money. They may sell these dogs for some you know, token amount. The ones that make the most money really have traditionally been the ones who transport them cross-country, who get them from Missouri, from Kansas to where, you know, to Manhattan to sell for $5,000 in a Chelsea pet store or, you know, to the West Coast, places where they can sell these dogs for a lot more and you have people willing to spend a lot of money. Now some of the breeders are becoming savvier and selling them for themselves online, which is also bringing in a lot more money. But traditionally, you know, they weren't making a lot of money. At least when I was reporting, you know, a lot of them haven't caught on to how to do the internet thing yet. But that's changing, obviously, more and more. So it was a way to survive. Um, And I, when I went into these farms... I saw, you know, the dogs live in a double wide and the owner, you know, the breeders live in the double wide next to it. You know, it's not, you know, it's not like they're, you know, puppy barons. It's, it's a sad reflection of how rural America has really sold out the small farmer and replaced it with big corporate agriculture. So you highlight a strange par- uh, paradox in your book, and you've already touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to explore it a bit more. Sure. And the paradox is that the way that we view dogs and the legal protections we afford them are dependent upon the context in which they live. So, for example, when on a factory farm, dogs are, I, I believe, like quite literally just viewed as livestock. Yes. And... Thus, they can be subjected to factory farm conditions. And you've already highlighted this. In the home, they are viewed as family and are eligible for vastly more 
stringent protections against cruelty and neglect. Same animal, same exact animal, mm -hmm. here treated as family and there treated as commodity. So could you talk to us a little bit more about this? Yeah. It's particularly heartbreaking because, you know, same animal, same tolerance for pain, you know, same expectations, you know, that are innate in a dog from birth, what to expect from a human. And by luck of where it falls on a property and on the same property, we had a case um, where the judge ruled on the same property, and I write about this in the book, a dog can either be classified as livestock or a companion animal, depending on what its role is. That's very upsetting, I think, for most people to recognize. And like I said, if I kept Izzy, my companion animal, in the exact conditions that would be okay in a USDA licensed facility, my neighbor could call animal control in most municipalities um, and say, hey, this, this woman's keeping her dog in a cage 24 hours a day outdoors and feeding it, you know, whatever. And in a lot of municipalities, that will be animal cruelty because it's a companion animal. You know, so I, I think we need to, and I, I started by saying this at the beginning um, about my own stupidity in purchasing a dog as otherwise a, you know, curious, <laughs> interested person in the world. I think that it's really important that when it comes to dogs, we can't get our heads straight. We really can't. We don't know how to treat these animals because on the one hand, we treat them like livestock. On the other hand, we treat them like pets. So what are they? You know, we got we to gotta get consistent on it because the dogs aren't changing. We've changed and we need to show a little bit of respect for this animal that really co-evolved with us. It's almost surprising. And it, it takes a lot for me to be surprised when <laughs> with our mistreatment of animals, but it's almost surprising because dogs fill such a privileged role in our society that it is beyond the pale for anyone to abuse dogs, really. And yet there are these conditions that are not well known, but, you know, they're publicly available through books like yours and other sure. articles, independent investigations. So this information is out there, and yet we as a society haven't really grappled with it yet. But I have that question just a couple from now. But So I did want to ask you about a very important point that you make in your book, mm -hmm. which is that so all animals living under factory farming conditions are living terrible lives. And there really isn't a meaningful sense about comparing sufferings. But... You do highlight one sense, I think, that's important in which dogs likely do experience a type of suffering that other animals do not. And this has to do with how thoroughly domesticated they are. Yeah. Um, and scientific studies have confirmed this, that mm -hmm. due to our millennia of evolving together with them, going back to prehistoric times, dogs have bonded very closely to humans. And you talk about a study in your book in which there's a real sense in which dogs may be more closely bonded to humans than even to other dogs. Yes. So when we treat them with indifference and cruelty, it is a great betrayal that they themselves seem to be 
aware of yeah. and suffer from. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. And and I should say I'm not a scientist. These are not my studies. So I'm citing other, you know, doctors who are preeminent in their field, um, like Dr. Frank McMillan, who writes beautifully about this. And when I came in particular across his studies about how dogs relate to humans, I, I was floored, particularly in his writing and experiments about epigenetic stress, which I can talk about if you're interested in, you know, later, um, but about how stress can actually impact their DNA and be passed from generation to generation, which sort of underscores why this is not a victimless crime. Um, Because, of course, that's a reason a lot of people purchase puppies. They think it's a blank slate where a shelter dog would not be. Um, But they did studies on dogs. They did brain scans where they looked at a dog that was offered praise versus treats. And this is a seminal study. And what they found was, because people say, well, dogs, of course, love humans. You give them treats. You know, and in my head when I wrote this book, I thought a lot about my non-dog people friends. Like, how do I get them to understand? Because Izzy is the first and only dog I've ever had in my life, and my husband too. Um, we never had dogs before. So I think, okay, how will you understand this? And, you know, this study really took it home. So dogs only like people because they have treats. Well, when they did a brain scan on, on, on a dog that received a treat, it didn't produce the same magnitude of effect as a dog who was given praise. And they also showed, you know, in a lab context. So these are not dogs recognizing the researcher as their owner, right? They don't sleep in their bed. They don't hang out on weekends. This is a researcher with the dog. The dog still felt less stressed when placed in the company of the researcher than their own litter mates. And I think that's a really profound effect because then you can only imagine, you know, how much more potent that kind of effect is when it's your dog or a dog with a person it recognizes as their owner. Or, you know, who knows, perhaps that dog just, it's its all one to the dog. I mean, I'm not sure. But the fact that the, the impact of a human as being something that can lower their cortisol levels was very profound and not even a person that they have this profound personal relationship with. So then when it is double-crossed, it is deeply upsetting. And I remember I, remember I went to um, <clears throat> the National Mill Dog Rescue um, it's out in Colorado. She's rescued well over 10,000 dogs from puppy mills. And her her focus is on the breeding dog. So she doesn't necessarily rescue the puppies. I mean, she'll take them occasionally. But she wants to get the dog that's been breeding and churning out dogs for 10 years and retire it to somebody. You know, otherwise, a lot of breeders might just kill it, which, by the way, is perfectly legal. And the USDA and the Animal Welfare Act have rules on exactly how to shoot a dog in the head to end its life after it breeds or whenever you want, which just horrifies me. But moving along from that ugly thing, when I would meet some of the dogs that they would rescue, the National Mill Dog Rescue would bring in, they were not what you and I would think of as dogs. There was that innate dogness that seemed to be missing from them. Like I would bend over and be like, oh, come here you know, and try to like engage with the animal the way I would engage, my dog just looked at me, you know, engage with any dog that I would see on the street or, you know, a dog as I know it and take for granted that dogness. These dogs did not have that for the most part because they've never been around humans. You know, they'd been in cages their whole life where their water was provided through a PVC pipe. 
rarely, if ever, coming into contact with a human. They were truly feral. And there was something that was just missing, that innate dogness. I don't know how else to describe it. And it broke my heart. And my presence created more (laughs) discomfort than not just to have a human being near them. So the only way I could make it better was to go away and obviously to write about it so people could understand this isn't a victimless crime. So you mentioned epigenetics. Mm. Epigenetics is back back in the day there was there was Mendelian genetics which is chromosomal. Mm. And then Lamarck, Lamarck was the guy that hypothesized that the reason giraffes necks grow longer is because they stretch their necks and their children inherit that stretch. And for a very long time, it was the Mendelian view that won. And in for the most part, the Mendelian view is the correct one. But epigenetics are is the, the form of genetic transfer that makes that Mendelian thing possible, where you can, in a single individual's lifetime, there can be made changes to their genetics that do affect their offspring. And the way that happens is through epigenetics. So if you want to talk to us a little bit about that, I am curious to hear a little bit more about some of the ways that commercial breeding operations damage dogs. So this could be anxiety-related behaviors, lack of aggressiveness, fear. Exactly. Um, this, as you detail in the book, disadmit, um, the fact that Izzy is disadvantaged from experiencing joy. Correct. And some of that happens during the individual's lifetime. Some of it is inherited genetically from trauma that the mother experienced while she was pregnant. So exactly. if you would, yeah, if you would go into that a little bit, that would be great. You you hit the nail on the head. Essentially, it's inherited traits. Your DNA is changed as a result of something that may have even happened before your mother was pregnant with you. There have actually been studies of epigenetic stress done on survivors of World War II, of the Holocaust, and how even people that weren't, you know, were not women that were not pregnant during the Holocaust, their genes were changed. And that effect was then carried on to their children a generation later. And we now have seen that in dogs as well, where there is epigenetic stress that creates a difference in the offspring of these animals. And now, mind you, you ramp that up to breeding an animal every heat, which could be every six months, and you have a lot of dogs that are being impacted by this effect. So it's important to think about. Izzy, and and, and the reason I, I bring this up is because Izzy is a healthy dog. Knock wood. <laughs> you know, a lot of the people that get into writing about this have a dog who died or are sick or something. Izzy to the outside observer is the perfect dog. But when I read the studies about epigenetic stress, I said, oh my God, <laughs> this is her. This is a dog who who typifies why commercial dog breeding is not a victimless crime. And more importantly, why a puppy mill puppy is not a blank slate, which is what everyone thinks. Why don't you just get a puppy? That way they don't have the baggage of the rescue dog or the shelter dog. Who knows where that dog's been all its life? You know, who knows what it's going to do when you get it into your home? Well, I got news for you. (laughs) Epigenetics is kind of an answer to that question, which is that, yeah, sure. I got a 12 week old puppy who's got a lifetime of emotional trauma that she inherited into her own DNA. There's nothing. I mean, I can try to make her more comfortable. I can try to make her happy. I mean, I think I've done the best job I can, but there's not a blank slate. There's no such thing as a blank slate in a purchased puppy. And I think people really need to recognize that because at the end of the day, consumer behavior is driving this 
problem. And so maybe if people realize that, you know, the purchased puppy isn't a blank slate and you might end up with, let's talk about investment, thousands of dollars. How much money do you pour into a pet over the course of its lifetime? Not even talking about acquisition costs, just food, toys, vet bills, whatever. Don't you want that investment to be in something that is has the longest life, the best life, the healthiest life? Shelter dog, a mixed breed dog might be your best bet because we're producing, we are factory farming dogs with issues the way that the system works. So can you quickly talk to, maybe maybe it makes sense to talk specifically about Izzy, but what are what are some of the symptoms that that a, a pet guardian could see in their own pet that manifests this this damage or trauma that they've that they've inherited either from their early days or from epigenetic changes and i know that you yourself encountered this when you had izzy looked into exactly it, it was something i was completely unaware of uh, maybe if you're a more seasoned dog owner, you'd recognize some of these things. I just thought she was quirky. I thought she was, you know, we were living in New York. I was like, she's just a quirky New Yorker like the rest of us. But she's not. She has mental problems. And I can give you, you know, I took her to a um, animal neurobehavioral scientist, one of the only ones in the world. There are very few people and took her to her lab. She does a lot of work with the military um, and helping them understand their dogs better. She's a brilliant woman, Dr. Karen Overall. And she ran, got a three-hour test on my dog. And for example, one of the things that she did was she put a bunch of little cardboard boxes and hid treats in it and had Izzy go look for it. And Izzy was kind of galloping around, looking, nosing in, but didn't find any of the treats. And I'm like, oh, look, she's having fun. She goes, no, 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 no. This is a dog who doesn't want to use her paws. This is a dog who, you know, demonstrates fear over something that she shouldn't. A healthy dog, a dog that has been advantaged, will mostly come in here and tear down this entire pile of boxes with its paws. She doesn't want to use her paws, probably because she was born on wire mesh and spent, you know, the first 12 weeks of her probably eight weeks of her life that way. And maybe because she was separated from her litter too early as the USDA regulations allow, you know? And so she never learned from a pack what is safe, what is not safe. She was separated from her mother, from her litter far too soon to learn that. And she wasn't going to learn that from me. I'm not a dog. I can't show her some of these things, love her all I want. And I think it's important for people to understand that and she has plenty of other quirks I could tell you about, but it's fascinating to see somebody actually shine a light on it when, you know, I couldn't see it. Well, also, and, and this is something else that really blew my mind when she was going through this battery of tests, she gave Izzy a test that you can replicate at home where she, me and Izzy left the room, came back, and her researcher was standing in front of three boxes. And the researcher pointed at a box and Izzy went to it and there was a treat there and she took it. I was like, okay, big deal. She goes, no, no, no. This is something that chimpanzees can't do, but dogs can do. And she hasn't been trained for it. I obviously haven't trained her to do any cool tricks at, or anything. Dogs outperform, outperform chimps on this kind of test and wolves can't do it because they are born to read human signs, human reference. So when you point to something, a dog knows what that means. A chimp does not, even though they are our closest. I mean, you can teach them, obviously, 
but innately they don't. Wolves do not. But dogs are born just reading us. Because of that shared evolutionary history, which we talked about. Exactly. And, you know, here, here's a dog that I saw two sides of in one day from this research. I saw a dog that can outperform chimps in its ability to read and interact with humans and a dog who, <laughs> through human interaction, has been made to have so many psychological traumatic reactions, like you, some of them you listed, where the fight or flight response is permanently toggled towards flight. You know, well, that makes her a really nice, non-aggressive dog, but it's robbed her of some of her dogness. And so Dr. Overall's, her conclusion from her studies was that Izzy does uh, express some symptoms of PTSD, and she summarized them, I believe, as saying that Izzy in life is simply uh, is disadvantaged from experiencing joy. Yes. That, and of course, she's a scientist, so she'll never say, because of this, it is this, that's how it is, you Fair know. Enough. But in her scientific <laughs> way of speaking, you know, this is a dog that has a ceiling on her ability to feel joy, which is very hard to hear as a customer, right. as a consumer. And I think that message, she's like, nobody's going to want to read this book because that's, everybody's going to hate to hear that, that. I said, no, but that's why people need to come to terms with this. Exactly. It is It is hard to hear, but simply ignoring it sure. is not the way forward. Right. So I, I, I kind of touched on this some number of questions ago, but the question needs to be asked, and I know there probably is no simple answer, but why do we as a society tolerate this? I <laughs> mentioned earlier that I think more than any other species, even more than cats, I think dogs are the privileged species mm. by humans. And yet we are in this situation where most of the dogs that we get grow up in puppy mill conditions that damage them. And mm. we didn't even really get into the full set of experiencing and the life lives by breeding dogs who are kept pregnant over and over and over and, and over again without pause until they're euthanized. So we take this species that we privilege above all others, and yet we put them through these conditions that I, I think on the one hand, I think people wouldn't accept them if they knew about them. But this information is out there through your book. But before your book, there have been exposés. Oh, there have sure. been, even I'm sure if you went to Wikipedia, you would be able to find this. So the information is out there, but people don't know about it or they kind of do. So are they in ignorance or is there indifference or, and as I said, I, I know there isn't a simple answer to this, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on how are we in this situation and is your book is part of attempting a solution, but do you, are you optimistic that we, we can get there to awaken people or are, are people just simply going to refuse to care or to know? Anyway, uh, 40 ways to ask one question, but what are your thoughts on the situation that, that we're in as regards to our, our favorite species? Well, it's, you say privileged position. I don't know that I would say it's a privilege to be something that people love to consume. 
I think it's dangerous. I think that in at least in our culture here in the United States, every country has a different system, but I'll just talk about here in the US. You don't want to be loved too much. <laughs> you know, we love things to death in this country. We like something, we're going to produce it and we're going to produce a lot of it, right? And dogs are a commodity. They tell people things about us, right? Like, you know, I got an Italian greyhound because I like what that says about me. I got a an English bulldog. It's only going to live five years, but I like what it says about me. You know, I think I got a golden retriever because what it says about my family, about my value. You know, every kind of dog we get tells it's conspicuous consumption. You're going to walk it at least three times a day, if assuming you're a good owner, I guess. I mean, whatever. People, the dog is a reflection of ourselves. And we love things to death. When we really like something, we make a lot of it. And it's never great to be on the other end of that. Now, if you're mass-producing washing machines, who really cares? I mean, it's not hurting the washing machine. Hopefully, your workers are taken care of. Um, but if you're producing something living, that's not going to go too well for the living creature with sentience and consciousness that is being produced. You know, it's... It's unfortunate in some ways that we love dogs so much. Maybe if we loved them a little less, we would leave them alone. And, I, you know, I think about this when I, you know, it's a spoiler alert, I guess, but in the book, I write about going to Izzy's breeder myself and seeing the facility for myself and seeing the Wheaton Terriers in their cage outdoors, round the clock in the oppressive Missouri summer. And it dawned on me that if Izzy were, you know, unfortunately for her, maybe a more perfect specimen of dog, if she were, her proportions were better or her gait were better or whatever that made her a perfect specimen to breed, that would be her in the cage and not my home. Just by the fact that she was in some way not perfect enough to breed or not the one that needed to be bred from that litter, she got to live. You know, by just some very small twist of fate, it's her in that cage for 10 years until her life ends with a bullet to the brain. I mean, that's that's the sadness there, you know, that we love these animals, so we do produce them. I think that's just part of what our culture is, and we need to think about that. You know, as consumers, and I can say anecdotally, I've had a lot of friends since I've written this book say, Oh, you wrote that book about dogs. Oh, I got a dog. I bought it online. I had a chip to me and do everything that I write about right. not doing. You know, every like you said, everybody knows. We all know now. You know, we've known since that ASPA, ASPCA infomercial had Sarah McLaughlin singing every night at two in the morning. You know, we've known, but we still do it because, well, it's our dog and we love it. You know, it's, Everybody makes exceptions for themselves. And I think it's just a it's just a sad fact about culture. You know, and if you're asking about solutions and how to fix this, I think it has to start with the consumer. I think it has to start with how we educate our children about animals. And I think it also has to start with perhaps moving it out of the USDA's context. Like it shouldn't be under the arm of agriculture at all. You know, if you get a butcher telling you how to raise puppies, I mean, that's a very extreme way to put it. 
what they think is bad behavior is going to be very different than having a animal rescue person raise puppies. Everyone's going to bring their baggage to it. So let's just get it out of agriculture. It shouldn't be there. Right. You bring up an example in the book. I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but it is an interesting example. I believe that the name is the, the name of the breeders was the Ritters. Mm, and the example is that I believe it's in, literally on the same day you have state inspectors and federal inspectors inspecting the facility and the state inspectors find a whole bunch of violations and the federal inspectors find none. And the only reason I bring that up is because it is an example how if you do change the inspectors, Mm -hmm. you might get different results. And these aren't animal protection advocates necessarily. These are just state inspectors as opposed to federal USDA inspectors. So I, I do think that it makes a lot of sense that that would be part of the equation. But I also agree with you that we have to start with the consumer because your answer perfectly answered my question. We desire possession of these objects that we love and we're willing to turn a blind eye. But it it also doesn't at all answer the question of why are we willing to turn a blind eye? But that is that is just who we are. And that it seems to me that is the thing we will we have to figure out some way to get at why how can we convince people to to acknowledge and not not to run from these unpleasantries and to acknowledge them and try to figure out a solution to them. And I should say, you know, one, gosh, if, if you can even call it that, one positive footnote is that since the book has been published, it did help raise an outcry about Cornerstone Farms, which you referenced, the Ritter's Farm, which I write about in depth in the book, and it has since been shut down. But it took years and it took constant exposure, not just for me, but a lot of constant exposure and, you know, litigating and just, it it took years and it took the state attorney general eventually. Um, It's, I, I think as consumers, we need to reflect on how we acquire things. You know, people, and especially we've seen this during the pandemic where people want dogs, they want them now. You know, and people always ask me all the time, oh, you wrote a book about dogs. I want I want a Sharpay or I want a whatever. How do I get it? How do I know I'm doing it right? And I'm like, well, are you willing to wait two years? Are you willing to wait for a breeder who might just not have more than three breeding females in her facility and breed them when they naturally are breeding with a stud? Or, you know, like, are you willing to wait? And most people are like, oh my God, two years, that's crazy. Like, not something well, Americans are very good at. No, of course not. You know, but it's this is an animal that best case scenario might spend close to two decades in your home. It might be in your Christmas cards. It might be in your newborn photo shoot when you have a baby. It might be in your wedding. This is an animal that is, you're dedicating, certainly, hopefully, if you're a good owner, the dog's entire life to. Um, so why not have a little patience about that acquisition? And as we detailed earlier, we have, it, it, it's not just that this, this particular animal will have a relationship with your family, but it's that we have millennia yes. of experience building a relationship with these animals that, that the current generation seems to have some intuitive knowledge of. Mm-hmm. Um, so there really, there really is quite a burden on us, I, th- I think, I hope, to try to 
come to terms with our relationship with them and, and the way that we're currently treating them and if we feel comfortable with that. Well, we've created this animal. You know, we haven't created a lot of animals. This animal we've really truly created. And I, I can guarantee you if I took Izzy and I said, okay, well, this is where wolves live. Go have a nice life. Be free. She'd be gone in a minute. I mean, they are not now suited to go back to the environment that we plucked them from, you know, our ancestors, obviously. And, you know, I always like to end my talks when I used to be in person. I used to bring Izzy, too. Um, times obviously changed. You know, I would show this video of my son when he was born. I was pregnant when I wrote this book. And he was, I don't know, like four months old. And he just had his, a round of shots at the doctor. He was very cranky and he's crying. And Izzy just walks up to him and starts licking him. And yeah. he immediately stops crying. I haven't taught him. He's not a dog lover because I am. He's a, a you know an infant who's looking at a creature with teeth big enough to break his hands if she wanted to. who's four times his size. But he's instantly soothed. And she innately knows. I never taught her to go to him. He's been in my house a minute. <laughs> he's a newborn. She knew, oh, well, this creature needs me. I'm going to go and comfort it. You know, these are two, you know, you're bringing across the divide of millennia, two creatures that just innately respond to each other. And in my mind, I thought, oh my God, you know, this is the innate human animal bond in action. You know, two creatures that have not been taught to exhibit this behavior just innately know one is there for comfort one receives the comfort and understands and stops crying. You know, it's it's in us to do better. And that's why it's so shocking to us, you know, who get that, to see it undermined. So you don't touch very much on this in your book. And that's because your book is a work of journalism on the puppy mill industry mm -hmm. and not a work of advocacy. But we probably should at least briefly touch on the mm -hmm. fact that there are millions of dogs in shelters right now that yes. are in need of a home. So would you just quickly touch on that? Um, not only does adopting from these shelters save these individual dogs who will most likely be euthanized if they're not adopted, but it also means that there's less demand for yes. dogs in these other puppy mill, in the puppy mill type system. Absolutely. I think you know, it's the challenge is getting the people, you know, and this is something that even the animal welfare workers I spoke with would repeatedly say to me is, well, you're not going to convince, you know, somebody who wants a whatever e poo or e do mm -hmm. to get a pit, pit mix, you know? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of it is writing it to the people that are supporting this multi really billion dollar industry of the pet industry as a whole and what it stands for. Absolutely adopt absolutely take in a shelter dog. Absolutely stop telling yourself that, you know, and like we talked about, that a puppy is a blank slate. Because I think that mentality drives so much of, you know, the consumer imagination away from the shelter dog. Shelter dog is much more likely to be a mixed breed and therefore probably healthier and not overly inbred. Whatever baggage you think is coming with that dog, you might get 10 times as much baggage with a dog that you buy. And by the way, if you read my book, you'll see a lot of these dogs that I wrote about in the book that came from breeders die or something. You know, they it doesn't go well for them. I'm very lucky. But I, I don't want anybody to look at my situation ever and think, you know, oh, well, it worked out for her. So I, I'm very open about Izzy's problems. 
And that's sorry. That's that's one thing that's just worth hitting on really quickly that I forgot to bring up and ask you about. But another thing that the Animal Welfare Act does not touch on is genetic diversity at all. And with these breeding lines, you end up with extreme genetic. uh, I don't know what the opposite. uh, Extreme genetic homogeneity and. With genetic homogeneity comes susceptibility to all sorts of diseases, which at least partially accounts for what you're what you're referring to. There's the possibly higher mortality rates and higher disease prevalence rates among thoroughbred animals as opposed to mixed dogs. The fact that, you know, Izzy is a Wheaton Terrier and I get a list, you know, with what a Wheaton Terrier is of all the diseases she's most likely to get. There, there is just constant inbreeding and there's nothing in the animal welfare act about it and by the way why not breed litter mates <laughs> you know why not you have them on your property you really think that john q puppy miller is going to go fly in you know frozen semen from another line and another farm of course not you know that's not how it works so yeah there's just rampant inbreeding but i think never consider i think it's just about consumer education right a shelter dog is a valued dog that comes with, depending which scientist you act, ask, 20,000, 30,000, 15,000 years of coevolution. This is a dog that comes fully loaded, whether you're buying it from a shelter or you're buying it from a breeder. And probably, like I said, has better genetic diversity from a shelter, maybe coming from somebody's home that can't even take care of it. So, you know, this might be a dog that just really needs a place to live and has already been accustomed to being in a home that couldn't take care of it. You know, we should also talk, you know, briefly about why people give up dogs and like thinking about that side of it too. And just like the willingness to part with, you know, a dog is just a horrifying thing as well. Um, You know, so remembering, and you know, we've seen this behavior in action. We're actually, I live in Philadelphia and Philadelphia um, County you, no more pet stores, right? So what uh, some local pet shops, and when I say pet shops, I mean like boutiques. They sell expensive leashes, no animals. What they've started doing, and we've seen this in a lot of municipalities work successfully, is selling shelter, er, sorry, adopting out shelter dogs within the context of what would be a doggy in the window. And I have a friend who brought one home, I don't know, a month ago, and she's happier than she's ever been. You know, so you remove the dog from the shelter context, you put it in a fancy pet store selling $50 leashes and, you know, expensive organic dog treats. And suddenly that shelter dog has a completely new value and somebody's willing to adopt it. And actually, my friend who adopted recently got into like, you know, a battle with other people also trying to adopt that dog. So suddenly there's competition for a shelter dog that was in a high kill shelter Mm. not a week before. So the consumer context, like, you have to remember, like we are creatures who are very susceptible to marketing and sales and consumer behavior. You know, you get that dog home, you give it a bath and suddenly, oh my God, this is a completely different animal. This is an animal that's, and how would you look if you were stuck in a pound for a week? I mean, my hair certainly wouldn't look so great. You know, like think about it. You know, these are animals that are worthy and in need of a home and you change that animal's context and suddenly people realize that. You know, and I think that's one of the funny quirks about humans. And if you can just kind of get your head around it, you could have a beautiful, lifelong animal, you know, in your home today instead of waiting two years. So maybe there's a way to like turn it on its head to the benefit of dogs that need homes. 
So, Rory, thank you so much. Of We've course. already taken up a lot of your time. To wrap up, can I just ask you, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us? <laughs> so, you know, somebody asked me the other day if I'm working on another book. And I said, I'm working on a lot of books because I'm currently in law school. Writing this book actually kind of got me really thinking about how our our laws are made. Um, for better or worse. So at my ripe old age, I decided to go to school and go back to law school. So I'm currently studying. So I'll see everybody in three years, I guess, <laughs> and uh, hopefully have a, a better understanding of how to actually make some real change. Well, congrats on that. I hope that you will keep an eye on, on the animals and um, absolutely and keep looking out for them. So Rory, your your book is really terrific. Thank I would you. say it is now the go-to source for everything you need to know about this crucially important, if underreported on, industry. Thank, Thank you, you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Rory Kress about her 2018 book, The Doggy in the Window, how one dog led me from the pet store to the factory farm to uncover the truth of where puppies really come from. If you have a pet or ever had a pet or may ever have a pet or just plain believe that dogs or any animal should not be subjected to the modern day animal agriculture system, then you'll find this book as alarming as you do informative. I hope that you will consider reading it. The theme music for this episode and for all my episodes is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. See you next time.